and I stepped into a foot of water above the sailboat masts, our deck. And that's when I called Anne on the cell phone. I said, hey, babe, we're sinking. From Wyoming Public Media, this is Human Nature, real stories where humans and our habitat meet. I'm Erin Jones. This time, we'll hear about a man who wanted to draw attention to a problem no one could see. So he sailed into the middle of it. Marcus Erickson has always had a sense of adventure and a love for nature. So when he was offered a chance to visit the island of Midway Atoll while earning his PhD in science communication, he jumped at the chance. Midway Atoll is an island in the middle of the Pacific Ocean, halfway between California and Japan. It's famous for its World War II history and for its albatross. There are 5,000 mating pairs of laysan albatross. Think of a chicken that's two and a half feet tall. They're amazing birds, and they'll form these mating pairs. They'll mate for life, and they'll return to the same island, almost the same nest, every year to lay one egg, and they'll raise one chick. But I was completely shocked and dumbfounded that every single bird skeleton I saw, every single one had like a handful of plastic trash. The albatross were eating small pieces of plastic that they found, and that plastic stayed in their stomachs until they died. Cigarette lighters, I remember an asthma inhaler, wire nuts, bottle caps everywhere, pen caps, fragments of broken buckets and crates, even uh, syringes, all this plastic stuff. And these birds, they've only known food for millions of years, and they're consuming all this trash. When Marcus finished his PhD in 2003, he decided to reward himself with an adventure he'd been dreaming of for years, a rafting expedition down the Mississippi River. Marcus built his own raft using 232 plastic bottles and two bicycles welded together into a paddle wheel. At the time, using bottles was more about utility than sending an environmental message. Plastic bottles are durable and easy to replace. But as Marcus traveled down the Mississippi for five months, he couldn't stop thinking about plastic pollution. I mean, I could always see plastic bottles and plastic bags and bottle caps and straws and cup lids and all this plastic stuff, this single-use, throwaway stuff, flowing from our greatest watershed out to the ocean. So then, you know, I now understood what the impact of plastic is and where it's coming from. The world's watersheds, every river is now a conduit for trash to enter our shared oceans. And that kind of sealed the deal for me, where I saw all that and realized, okay, I've got to understand this plastic pollution issue and see where I can make a change. And when I got back, I drove my raft to California, right to the front door of Captain Charles Moore. Captain Charles Moore discovered the Great Pacific Garbage Patch. You may have heard of this. A lot of people think of it as a huge island of trash. Plastic trash collects in the North Pacific Gyre. A gyre is a system of circular ocean currents. And the North Pacific Gyre stretches all the way from the coast of California to Japan. 
Since the gyre moves in a big circle, trash and debris are trapped in its currents and pulled toward its center. So for the next few years after his Mississippi raft trip, Marcus and Captain Moore studied plastic pollution together. During this time, Marcus started dating a woman named Anna Cummins, and she joined them on their sailing trips. On one trip in 2008, Marcus and Anna had an idea to turn their research into activism. They founded an organization called the Five Gyres Institute to fight marine plastic pollution. And I thought, what's a better way to launch an organization than another audacious raft? On the same voyage, Marcus proposed to Anna with a ring he made from fishing line he pulled out of the ocean. But he had one condition. When I asked her to marry me, I asked and I said, but I want to build this raft. Anna said yes. Together with fellow passenger and ocean videographer Joel Pascal, Anna and Marcus started to plan the rafting expedition. Did any of you have any experience in building something like that? No, not at all. I had built my little plastic bottle raft on the Mississippi River. I built a few, you know, uh, gimmicks with uh, other schools, but no experience boat building. Joel is a, a seasoned sailor, so he understands boats. So I drew this raft, this Thor Heyerdahl Kantiki style raft, and Joel said, okay, that needs to be bigger. That steel is going to be twice as strong. So it was good to have Joel to sort of make things more robust. And that was life-saving in retrospect. The group decided that their plastic bottle raft would travel from the coast of California to Waikiki, Hawaii, riding the North Pacific Gyre just like actual plastic trash does. Joel would accompany Marcus on the raft as co-navigator, and Anna would be their land-based mission control. So when we landed in Los Angeles, we had a plan. We're going to build this raft, but we had to launch by June 1st. That was less than three months away. Any time past that, you're in hurricane season. So we landed in Los Angeles. Within the first couple of weeks, we had a donor, gave us some seed money. We got to Burbank Recycling and gave us 15,000 bottles. We had four schools collecting bottles for us. We scoured every junkyard in Southern California and found these 24 sailboat masts from broken sailboats. Then went to the coolest junkyard uh, inland in the desert where there were just hundreds of airplanes just half buried in sand and found one perfect Cessna 310 aircraft missing its wings but it had intact windows and doors and that was it 500 bucks and I had that plane on a trailer tied the whole thing together and in two and a half months we had a raft we had brand new solar panels brand new wind generator brand new navigation equipment but the rest was just junk all junk so we called it junk one of my last tasks was to take some black spray paint and write junk across the front of the sail Junk raft was 30 feet long, about the length of a school bus. The pontoons were made of 15,000 plastic bottles wrapped in recycled fishing net. On top of the pontoons, there was a deck made out of old sailboat masts. The deck was just eight inches off the water. And then there were two upright masts that leaned together to form an A-frame. Four different sails could be attached. They lashed the airplane cockpit to the center of the raft as a cabin. And on June 1st, Junkraft launched from Long Beach, California on its maiden voyage. 
We had some confidence because all of us had been sailing with Captain Charles Moore in the Pacific. We understood the ocean. I've been on a few sailing voyages, and Joel was a seasoned sailor. I had my rafting experience, but this raft was new, and there were a lot of unknowns. In fact, on day three, we had our biggest storm, 50-knot winds, 8- to 10-foot rolling seas, and I stepped out of the airplane into a foot of water above the sailboat masts, our deck. And that's when I called Anne on the cell phone. I said, hey, babe, we're sinking. And she was sitting at a coffee shop in Santa Monica with her mom having coffee. And her mom just said, well, go get them. And she did. So she showed up with a crew of six people. I gave her a laundry list of things that we needed. What we needed was glue. And the reason why is, unlike the Mississippi River, the ocean was twisting the caps off the bottles. And when the volunteers showed up, we spent that one day at sea. While the raft is moving around, we began pulling bottles out of the raft, pouring out the water, gluing the caps back on. And I was realizing how weak this raft was and how it required constant maintenance. Now, that was a hard, a hard goodbye to say to Anna. And I remember you know, we're holding hands as the sailboat that brought her pulled away, and then you know, our hands were, were torn apart, and then we, we separated. And for, I'd say, almost every day, every other day, I would call her and ask, where are the hurricanes? Where are the storms? That was the most important thing for us, was to make sure we did not get nailed by any big storms, because I knew the raft would not survive. And there was no turning back. I, mean, I had made so many promises to everyone and myself and to Joel and to Anna that we're going to complete this mission. And at this point, it was much more dangerous. For the first leg of their journey, Marcus and Joel were riding the California Current. That current runs south until it hits the trade winds, which blow west to Hawaii. Marcus thought that they would only be on the California Current for a few days. But those days dragged into weeks. Those first three weeks were full of anxiety, depression. I think just looking at our time, because we, we thought we might get there in three or four weeks to Hawaii. Because, you know, there's a big Transpac race, and boats get there in three weeks or less. And we thought, oh, three weeks or more on our raft. Maybe if we're unlucky, we'll plan for twice that, six weeks. And we're already three weeks in, and we haven't made a single inch toward Hawaii. We're just at sea. We hadn't caught a fish yet. Our supplies were beginning to dwindle. We then began to think about rationing supplies when there was still 2,000 miles to go. And the raft was... Uh, falling apart a bit. You know, there was still the bottles were, were filling full of water. I mean, every day I would take 10 bottles out, pour the water out, glue the cap on, and then put the bottle back in. When we finally hit the trade winds, we turned towards Hawaii. And the trade winds are what took early explorers across the Atlantic from Europe to the U.S. or, you know, ships from the U.S. to East Asia. Trade winds are like a highway, and sailboats love the trade winds. So we were in the right place, but then, surprisingly, we stalled. We got becalmed. The wind just stopped. For a solid week, there was no wind, 
And the ocean does this funny thing when there's no wind. It gets flat. It gets calm. And it takes on this this optical illusion of an oily sheen where it's so reflective. And we sat there, and I called Anna, um, who was our land-based mission control, and she said, there's a massive hurricane building up off of Cabo San Lucas. And she sends the map to me. And I'm like, how can it be that we are a thousand miles away from this massive hurricane and the ocean's flat like glass? That was one week. And then came this little puff of wind. Little tiny puff. And when we got a puff of wind, we were able to move 200 miles away. And that hurricane, it came and died right where we had been. And then I called Anne again. She said, there's another one. So we moved another two, three hundred miles, and that hurricane came and died where we had been. They were chasing us. And the last hurricane, Hurricane Genevieve, snuck up behind us. And you know, Captain Charles Moore on the Sally phone had been telling me, go north, stay north, get in colder water. In the warm waters, hurricanes love those, and they'll build up strength. And Hurricane Genevieve came really close, gave us 35, 40 knots of wind. I remember one of our sails, our spinnaker, just tore into pieces. And she gave us a run for our money. We were able to use the wind from Hurricane Genevieve to make up to 50 miles a day in the days that she was speeding up behind us. And we just barely escaped. John Graft continued to show signs of wear and tear. One of its masts cracked, wires began to fray, and Marcus sometimes worried that their cabin would slide off into the ocean. But despite all that, life on John Graft wasn't always life or death. Every day was different. I'd say most of the time, though, there was tremendous boredom. But we got used to boredom. Like I could say for the middle two months, middle month and a half, I had the morning watch, so from 1 a.m. till 9 a.m., I was steering the boat nonstop. And by the time I was off watch, Joel took the helm, I would make water. So we have a big hand pump, and you pump this thing, it sucks water out of the sea, and you get a little spit of fresh water. I'd do that for two hours. I'd fill one two-liter bottle full of water, and I'd cap that for the rest of the day, then put the hose in my mouth and feed myself for an hour. And the rest of the day, I would sit and watch the ocean or write. I I read Don Quixote a couple times, one of the few books I brought. Reading Don Quixote, did you ever, I don't know, did you ever think about what you were doing as at all quixotic? Yes, very much so. So I compared myself and Joel to Don Quixote and and Sancho Panza. Um, (laughs) If if you know Don Quixote, I mean, Don Quixote is, is a character that has these fanciful, crazy notions and, you know, chasing windmills with sword while Sancho Panza is the voice of reason says no we have to do this we have to go this way stop doing that do this so I was the one saying we have to go to Hawaii on this raft of possible bottles and Joel would say okay if we're going to sail you need to have a more robust rudder and, and while I would complain about the dire consequences of the boat falling apart he was there fixing things
but sitting there watching the ocean, it's, it's mesmerizing and it's calming. I mean, I got to a point where I could count to 1,000 without stopping. Just take a breath, count. One, two, to 999. I can't count to 20 today without thinking of balancing my checkbook or what I have to do or whatever that has to happen next. I get so distracted. But your mind really slows down while you're at sea. Sometimes, Marcus and Joel sailed by pieces of plastic large enough to pull from the water. They caught a fish with a belly full of plastic fragments. As they were sailing, Marcus made a tool to help measure the pollution they encountered. So I had this little sea anchor, this piece of equipment, and the sea anchor is like a big giant funnel that you put behind your your boat to slow you down if you're going fast. We were never going to need a sea anchor. I cut it up into pieces and I made a net what we call a trawl, a trawl for surveying the sea surface. It's what scientists use to capture plankton and do research studies. And I use it to capture plastics on the sea surface. So I, I made a trawl, and we began sitting our seas. As Junkraft followed the North Pacific gyre, Marcus was trawling the Great Pacific Garbage Patch. Sometimes people call this Pacific debris a Texas-sized island of trash, but that's not exactly what Marcus found. Every day we'd pull up this net and there would be this kaleidoscope of small particles of plastic the size of grains of rice or smaller, like maybe two or three teaspoons in my hand. And I realized, okay, this, this is that, that mythical trash island people think about. It isn't an island at all. But the reality is, it is this... Think of smog over our most polluted cities. Like the way... Los Angeles, New York, Chicago might have been 20, 30 years ago, the way Beijing is today. Think of that in the ocean. It's the same thing. You've got trillions of small particles. And I published a paper back in 2014 estimating 5.25 trillion particles afloat in the world's oceans. And that's what trash in the ocean looks like. The smog of plastic in our seas is more insidious than a trash island. Small particles are much more bioavailable, which means a the many filter feeders out there, from baleen whales to jellyfish to barnacles, organisms that just grab water and sieve it to get the zooplankton, other foods, out of that water. They're now getting plastic. They're getting a lot of trash in every gulp of water they take in and sieve in their mouths. So that means that we're impacting the entire ocean ecosystem. The base of the food chain are the most filter feeders, and they're taking in all this trash, and all the toxins absorbed onto those plastic particles. So, yes, an island of trash would have been a much easier fix. You go out and you get it, and you plug the rivers that are feeding that, that island. But it's just the opposite. We have this massive smog for small particles from the ocean's ability to shred plastics into smaller pieces. For 12 weeks, the only face Marcus had seen was Joel's. But then, alone on the Pacific Ocean, they had some unexpected company. We had the most amazing meeting at sea with another adventurer, traveler. Her name is Roz Savage. And Roz Savage is, is a solo ocean rower. She has this space-age canoe. It's like 20, 
two 24 feet long carbon fiber solar panels, bunch of antennas sticking out, but she sits there alone in the middle with her two oars. And I, I had called her the week before we left. She was in San Francisco planning her own journey. Unbeknownst to me, she was going to row across the ocean and row to Hawaii. And I called her to say, you know, great luck. I, I love what you're doing. And we're both doing this with the same issue, actually. Looking forward to meeting you. See you in Hawaii. And we left. And two months later, I'm talking with Anna on the phone. And, you know, we were down to eating peanut butter, granola, and fish, which is a horrible combination. But that's <laughs> what we had, had to eat. And Anna says, you know that, that woman, Roz Savage? She's like 200 miles from you. And I'm thinking, there's no way. She's in a much more efficient vessel than ours. And she left a week later, but she was just cruising out of the San Francisco. But she's 20 miles from us. And then Anna says, she's out of water. She had two electric pumps, and both of them had corroded and were not working. I said, oh. My first question was, does she have any food? And that began this constant communication every day at 6 a.m., 6 p.m. with Anna, with Roz. We got her phone number. Every day we talk. Where are you? Where are you going? What's your, your bearing? And Roz had to make a decision her first time ever to row backwards or to row back away from Hawaii. And for her, it was a psychological challenge because she had always been focused on go west, go west, go west, go to Hawaii. Had to make a choice, either, you know, go back and get water or try to make the next three weeks on the little water she had left in her ballast, this green water at the bottom of her boat. She turned around. She came back to us. It was her first time turning around. And we had the most amazing dinner party in the middle of nowhere. <laughs> we had promised her a mahi-mahi, and there were no fish under the raft. But just as we were pulling her in, this beautiful fish appears under the raft. And I jumped over. I handed her a rope. We towed her in. She climbed on board. Joel had just uh, speared the fish. We filleted it. And I couldn't believe how much this woman could eat. Ross Savage had an amazing appetite, but it was almost like Joel and I were her servants and she was the queen. We just kept giving her all the food she wanted. Yes, ma'am, would you like more sashimi? Would you like some baked mahi-mahi? Just kept on feeding her and we were just laughing the whole time. We spent two hours together, took a bunch of photos and video and then, and then departed. We gave her 10 gallons of water we had just made. It took us all day. And then she heaved over three bags of food, a bunch of Lara bars and turkey jerky and expedition meals, all this dehydrated stuff. And we basically traded, you know, gifts of life in the middle of the ocean. Two weeks later, on August 25th, after traveling about three months and nearly 2,600 miles, Marcus and Joel saw land. The moment that we saw Hawaii, and Joel saw land first, I remember that instantly my mind shifted to land. And you, you can smell land. If you're a sailor, you know when you get close to land, you can, you can smell it. You see seabirds. You might see an insect for the first time. And at the same time, we stopped logging into our journals. I stopped eating dried fish. I was like, I'm going to stop eating this stuff and just wait for that big salad. 
We stopped doing maintenance on the raft. We had about three or four days to go to get past Molokai and then shoot the channel to get into Waikiki. And we arrived right there in the channel around 11 o'clock at night. And we didn't realize that, you know, as we get to the islands, water moves fast as it gets squeezed between islands. We're going so fast. And Anna had flown in and our friends picked her up, took her right to the dock. She hopped on the boat, not a second to spare. And the boat then took off and met us in the channel. And I remember the boat pulling up right inside of the raft. I was watching Anna, you know, just bouncing on the, on the bow. You know, we hadn't seen each other in three months. And we had just got engaged. And the boat screamed almost past the raft. And I hopped off. I got in the back of the boat. And I met Anna right in the middle for this, I mean, I, I'm getting choked up now, this long embrace. I just hadn't seen her. And we had thought, you know, there's a chance that we might lose each other because of this raft, how, how dangerous it had become. And then after Anne and I had spent some time together, my first thing I wanted was a, a salad. So I went right to a restaurant in Waikiki and got a big mountain of spinach. For Marcus, the impact of his junk raft is difficult to measure. But despite its difficulties, he feels that the journey was worth it in the end. It added to a growing movement. You know, on the dock, when we landed in Waikiki, I could recognize, you know, a dozen people that were working on, on new innovative products. People working on the plastic bag bands. Captain Charles Moore, he was on the dock with floral lays to greet us. So I, I saw... All my people were there. And that, for me, was, there was such solidarity. It was the beginning of this massive movement. And today, the movement is in the millions of people that are looking at waste, trying to achieve zero waste. Our storyteller was Marcus Erickson. Since his voyage on Junkraft in 2008, the Five Gyres Institute has been instrumental in creating a number of policies to protect our oceans and freshwater lakes and rivers from plastic pollution. To learn more about their work, visit our website, humannaturepodcast.org. Before we go, we have more supporters to thank. Sally Peterson from Okeechobee, Florida. Katie Moore from Waynesville, Ohio, and Josh Clark from Waco, Texas. Thanks also to Monty Hudson from Santa Barbara, California, and A.J. Walters from Dover, New Jersey, who says, The other day I was driving through a snowstorm with human nature playing. I felt like if you guys kept talking, I could keep driving. Seriously, thank you. 
And thanks from us to everyone who supports the show. If you'd like to make a donation and score a sticker or a t-shirt, go to humannaturepodcast.org and click on donate. Thanks. I'm Erin Jones. Human Nature is produced by me, Caroline Ballard, Alana Elder, August Law, Annie Osborne, and Tressa Versteg. Our digital producer is Anna Rader, and our executive producer is Micah Schweitzer. The theme song is by Caught a Ghost. Human Nature is a production of Wyoming Public Media. It's human nature.